Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. In part one of 30 for 30, we heard about the formation of key ideas, the assembly of a small documentary production group inside ESPN, and prestigious filmmakers moving forward with a slate of eclectic ideas. But the highly competitive and political nature of ESPN reared its head, and it wasn't pretty. In fact, acclaim, awards, or whatever, that wing of the company was intent on preventing 30 for 30 from continuing. I had always been scared as we were making the series that some of these are going to bomb, and I better have more than 30 in production as just a safety net, right? Just like, hey, nobody bats a thousand, so if this project goes totally sideways or we have to kill it or something happens, like we better have this two, three, four more ready to go because this will probably happen a lot. And so we had some really interesting films that we were still making, and I don't think anyone thought it wasn't working and thought, okay, you need to walk away from this. We just started to say, okay, these documentaries are going to be called ESPN Films Presents The Fab Five. And that was the first one we did after the series had ended. And look, what happened was exactly what you would have expected happened had you not been literally sitting inside the place obsessing over this. All of our fans just called them 30 for 30s. And it took us a little while, maybe a little longer than we should have to kind of go back to the brand. We put together an argument for why we should create a second slate of 30 films and call it 30 for 30 Volume 2. The memo Shellen Simmons wrote to Skipper in the summer of 2011 in an attempt to save 30 for 30 reeked of desperation. There was no hubris involved. While its subtext was pleading, there was a bold call for the company to produce 50 additional documentaries between 2011 and 2014. The two men asked, shouldn't we be ramping up instead of slowing down? The memo was broken down into numerous key topics, posed as questions such as, how would they get so many additional documentaries made? There were timeline questions, questions about commitments to diverse filmmakers and stories, ad sales, a budget ask, which was almost $9 million, and a Grandland tie-in, including having Simmons do a podcast with the filmmakers. Wasn't going to happen when Keith and Joan were there. Keith left. Joan, around 2011, it became clear that that she moved this whole department to LA. It became clear that that department was going to get liquidated. And we started making a real run at the second series. And we sketched it all out. Connor wrote the first memo, sent it to me. I rewrote it, like made it more like a writer. He wrote like the nuts and bolts of it. I wrote it like more of an essay memo slash thing, sent it back to him. We just kept sending it back and forth. It was ready. We had everything locked down. It was paid for. We had the filmmakers. It was basically like, we're insane not to do this. And we have this brand that is sitting there. The biggest thing we had in our advantage was that something like the Chris Heron one or um, the Gibney one would go up and people were like, did you see 30 for 30 last night? It wasn't even called a 30 for 30. We we're like, this is ridiculous. Just let's do another series. Bill is perhaps the greatest creative partner I'll ever have. And in those early days, as I was describing before, 2006, 2007, and then when we got going... And I'm going out having all these meetings all the time, you know, 
calling him, talking about it. I mean, we agonized over every decision, and we did that together for a period of a few years there. At a certain point, he started to do other things, and that's great. I mean, he got Grantland going and launched his podcast, and, and those things were all forces of their own. But with 30 for 30, and we realized this after some decisions were made after the first series ended and we decided to, oh, we're going to keep making documentaries, but we're going to change the name of this thing. We started to understand that we had actually hit the culture in a really interesting place and, and our fans really responded to it. And I had a few times really early on tried to like call Bill and say, I don't know if we can do 30 of these things. Like maybe can we make it 10 and then we'll do a bunch of smaller things. So that was like the Gibney catching hell doc. One of the John Hawk docs, I think it was Chris Heron, which now we have folded back into the series. So when you buy it, it's like 30 for 30. Those weren't 30 for 30s. Those were just ESPN films. And we thought it was ridiculous. And when Connor had no juice at that point, I was signing a new contract. I think I had agreed to the new contract, but 30 for 30, you know, it was like develop more stuff, but 30 for 30 series two wasn't part of it. And we're thinking like, this is crazy. We A, we built a brand, which is impossible. B, everyone DVR season passed it. So now we're just throwing all those eyeballs away. And then C, we filmmakers that want to work with us now. Let's do another thing. And we were like, we want shorts to be part of this. We'll premiere them on Grantland. We feel like the digital space is ready. We have ideas that aren't necessarily good enough for a 30 for 30. They're good enough for... 10 minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, and we think this could be a real important space for us. Boom, that becomes part of it. Grantland's going at that point. I am at the best point I've ever been with Skipper and Walsh, and it's just good. We're off, we're going. Connor and I at that point felt like one more series and we're done. And we could get a little more experimental. Like that one hour for the first batch, which we stuck to for the most part now, I'd be like, yeah, hey, maybe we go 90 minutes. Maybe we go. Maybe it's an hour 45 and we do a little 15 minute show at the end of it. Like, let's take some chances and do some stuff. This was the moment that Bill Simmons, quote unquote, power was not only at its most dramatic, but also put to its best use. Shell at this time was gaining respect, but didn't have the clout. Walsh had been talking more openly about retirement. It's a veritable certainty that 30 for 30 would not have continued if Simmons hadn't had so much influence and hadn't pushed so hard. By mid-2011, the series had earned ESPN an ultra-prestigious Peabody Award, a special Emmy for TV with a Conscience, a primetime Emmy nomination, and an award from the National Association of Black Journalists. Yet future production was uncertain, limited at best. To Simmons and company, the decline was an insult to the series' potential. Around this time in 2011, Simmons and Shell pitched a plan to ramp up production for a 50-film target spanning 2012, 2013, and 2014. The case was finally closed at the 2012 TCAs when ESPN announced 30 for 30's second season, including a more manageable 30 new films airing into 2014. And so 30 for 30 survived. Somebody suggested to me, well, this brand is kind of working. Do you think we should just keep doing this? And we said, yeah, let's just, we don't need to call things ESPN Films Presents. Let's just call them 30 for 30s. We have a brand, it's working. I remember we had a box set of the films and you could see that little logo on the side. And I remember looking at it and going, that's a fine logo. And I do also remember, and I can't tell you in what circumstance, somebody going, well, you know, ESPN didn't mean a whole lot 
for a long time, and now it's just ESPN, and 30 for 30 will just be a documentary, which is what it is now. So the decision to continue with another go beyond with 30 for 30 after the original 30 was, I guess, not obvious because it was a further commitment of money and resources, but you were so pleased at that point, you didn't see any reason to end it. Uh, we did not. We thought you'd continue to call it 30 for 30, and I can't quite remember. We didn't do 30, of course, but I think we did somewhere between 6 and 10, mm-hmm. sort of every year since. Boom, they agree, we're off. As part of that plan, we also did the 30 for 30 shorts. What I realized that actually made us decide to keep doing it was it was an enormous brand halo, right? It's not an enormous business. We do very well, but not relative to the overall business. It's really more about, I, I learned that if I went to speak to uh, journalism classes that they'd mention in those days, maybe page two, maybe the magazine, maybe E60, almost certainly 30 for 30. So it's where I understood that you could do some things that were like doorways into ESPN that wouldn't feel like the big sports center, college game day ESPN, but sounded a little bit more like a friendly storytelling ESPN. We've had almost no duds in this series. And there has been a tradition of finding filmmakers, using them again. The projects become more ambitious. I just say that the group has shown remarkable consistency. Brian Koppelman is the co-creator of Showtime's Billions and one of the writers of Ocean's 13. In 2013, he co-directed This Is What They Want for 30 for 30. In Levinson-like fashion, Koppelman fixated on things closest to home in his film. Close, in this case, amounted to 20 minutes, the distance between the National Tennis Center and his childhood home. In his younger years, Koppelman was another New Yorker, enjoying the first golden age of professional tennis, with Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe, and Jimmy Connors leading the transformative era. In 1991, Koppelman witnessed an old hero come alive, when the 39-year-old Connors made an unlikely second run for greatness at that year's U.S. Open. What was it about that story that appealed to you and made you want to do something on it? Really, like, everything about it. David and I grew up near Flushing Meadows, you know, and I worked at the U.S. Open as a kid. We loved the idea of this 39-year-old making a run at this tournament, this American, at this American tournament. And we've always, in all of our work, if you think about our movies and our show, been fascinated by people whose desire to win and to get the absolute most out of themselves was paramount. And the willingness of those kind of people to look difficult or look impossible or be outside of convention in order to achieve the thing they felt they were put on this earth to do. And in Connors, you had someone who wasn't afraid to look like a bad guy in order to get the result that he needed. And the question that was in our minds right from the beginning was, you know, what does it take to win when you're not supposed to win anymore? And what does it mean for someone who believes that in order to win, he has to have no friends in that world? Or he has to be willing to sacrifice friendships with his peers in order to vanquish them? Like that question was just amazingly animating to us. And then how that person would think about himself now. And so it just presented. And so we were emailing with Bill Simmons from an airplane. And we started talking about 30 for 30s because, you know, I was doing some writing for Grantland. And he said, like, what would you want to do? And Dave and I were sitting next to each other on this plane. And I said, how about Connors 91 Open? And he said, let's do it. David and I spoke to Jimmy Connors. We told him 
the exact film we were going to make, how we were going to make it. He wouldn't have any say over the content, but that we would interview him and all these other people. And he said, yes, let's do it. And then that was it. He was so fucking cooperative and sweet to us and honest. You know, he didn't hold back at all and was really willing to dive into this question. Right. I mean, we ask him and we tell him what these other players said about him and he wasn't offended by it. He was a total gentleman to us. Jimmy himself says at the end of the 30 for 30, I may be an asshole, but I'm a happy asshole. Ezra Edelman started directing documentaries for ESPN in 2014 when he made Requiem for the Big East. Later that year, he directed an episode of Soccer Stories. And then in 2016, went on, of course, to make the Oscar winner OJ Made in America. Luckily for ESPN, Edelman seemed predestined to tell the Big East tale. As with many of the other directors, Edelman was foremost fan before filmmaker, a rabid Georgetown Hoyas fan. But Edelman's beloved Big East was engulfed by shock and fury when deserters Syracuse and Pitt joined the ACC in 2011. Ezra had done a documentary on the Brooklyn Dodgers with Imani Martin for HBO. I saw it. I thought it was really good. Here's 30 for 30 executive producer John Dahl. Connor knew Ezra. And so I got to know Ezra eventually. And I think Connor and I agreed and Bill agreed we wanted to work with Ezra Edelman. Because that's the way it would work. Like, I'd say three quarters of the films we were doing were pitched to us, but there was another quarter where we had an idea. And then we matched it up with a filmmaker who believed in that idea, who was passionate about it, or it was personal to that filmmaker in some way. Connor and I had always wanted to do something on the Big East. Like, I think there was talk about Spike Lee maybe doing something on Georgetown. But I think Connor and I agreed that, ah, you know, hasn't that story kind of been told? Don't people kind of know the Georgetown story? Why don't we do something more? The story of the rise of the Big East is just amazing. And so I called Ezra and I talked to him about the Big East. Like, what did you think about telling the story of the early days of the Big East? And he actually decided he was into it because he had grown up in Washington, D.C. And he was a big Georgetown fan. So then what Ezra did is what happens in 30 for 30. Like, he took a concept, early years of Big East, and now he turned it into a narrative. And I really enjoyed working with him. He did such a good job. And toward the end of the process, that's when Connor started talking to Ezra about OJ. And, you know, the rest is history. It was right about the time when, you know, the Big East was, in essence, crumbling. And combined with the notion of me being a kid who grew up in D.C. and was informed by those teams and those rivalries, I think I understood it as I saw the film as something that was really a, there was a nostalgic turn to it in examining sort of what has been lost in the new economic realm of college sports and college basketball specifically. And so now there are no rules with how I can make this film. The Big East tournament was coming up, and I thought, well, this is the last time that Syracuse, one of the founding members of the Big East and the rival of Georgetown, was playing in the Big East tournament. And this was a tournament that I would sort of semi-consistently go to and was one of my favorite events ever. And so I understood sort of what was being lost by them not playing it anymore. And that was the way I was like, well, I'm gonna, I would like to shoot this event because in some ways this was kind of paradise lost. And so I knew I could, without knowing exactly how it would end up being in the film, but my instinct was I need to shoot this as the last real Big East tournament. And that ended up being a framing device for the film. Documentarian Andrew Jenks made The Zen of Bobby V with ESPN Films in 2008 and then made a 30 for 30 short in 2014 titled Posterized. With one cursory peek through Jenks' career, you'll discover a filmmaker with little hesitation to face and film the forgotten. 
Jenks finds a way to breathe life, intrigue, and power into transformative stories that others had unwittingly written off. I think one night I was wondering to myself, what happened to that 7-6 NBA player, Sean Bradley, that was supposed to be the next Michael Jordan? He was drafted, as I recall, number three. People, I mean, you can look back at the quotes, really thought this guy was a star in the making. And he turned out not to be. And instead, he's been infamously mocked. If you look him up on YouTube, there's endless videos of him being dunked on. He's in Space Jam. And even if you look at the stats, Harvard did a study where they looked at the stats in the game of Space Jam. And the monster that plays Sean Bradley is the only one with 0.0 rebounds, (laughs) 0 assists. They even find a way to mock him in Space Jam. And then as I was doing more research on him, I found out that he had played 12 years in the league. I forget the number, but it made somewhere around $100 million. Still with his family intact, he had run for public office. He would go and visit the troops in Afghanistan, I think on an annual basis, and was this model citizen. And it was one of those examples that changed your perception of what success is and who ultimately had the last laugh. And I was talking with the guys at ESPN, and I don't think any of us ever thought it was a feature. I think it was tailor-made to be a short. Once again, Jonathan Hawk with Survive in Advance, which was about Jimmy V. You went from someone who is, just by virtue of his ESPY speech, very wrapped and enmeshed in the ESPN culture. And I was just wondering, what was your port of entry into that doc, and what were some of the challenges you had there? Well, Derek Wittenberg approached me. He was, of course, captain of Jimmy V's championship team and threw up the air ball that led to their miracle win, although publicly we have to call it a pass still for Derek. But he came to me about two years before the show aired, and he said, you know, it's going to be the 30th anniversary, and a lot of people are going to want to tell a story, and we got to tell it right, and I want you to help me do it. And, you know, we pitched ESPN together, and you know, there was a lot of reluctance at ESPN to touch that story because Jimmy V is really the patron saint of ESPN, I think. In many ways, his story was untouchable and they didn't want to open it up for scrutiny. And there was a lot of pain in Jimmy V's life late because of the NCAA issues. And this was their saint and they wanted to protect him. And I'm not sure who over there was able to convince the people that needed to be convinced to allow me to do it, that there was enough trust there that the story would be told fairly and with an emotional truth. But they did say, okay. And the important thing for us was not just to showcase the ESPY speech and talk about St. Jimmy. It was to tell the story of the players whose lives he made so much richer by being their coach. And just listening to Derek Wittenberg talk about him, I made a decision that we're going to center the piece around the players and not Jimmy V himself. It'll end up being a film about Jimmy V, but it's going to be in the voice of the players. And through the experiences of the players and their emotions, we're going to learn more about Jimmy V than if we just talk about Jimmy V as this figure. So that was a risk we took, I guess, in a sense. But Connor and those guys were always so supportive of 
us taking risks. I remember with the Chris Heron film Unguarded, where I was filming for six months with Chris and had no idea how to tell the story. It was so weird to you know, think of having a sit-down interview with a guy, your main character, to talk about all these horrible things he had experienced and he had done and how he had hurt so many people. It was just sort of tawdry and, and weird. And, and then after seeing him speak one day, it was actually out in Fresno, he was speaking to a bunch of prisoners who were in rehab in prison and, you know, drug rehab in prison. And it was so amazing the way he told his story to them. And I... I realized that's how we're going to do it. We're not going to do a sit-down interview with Chris Heron. We're just going to allow the story to be told in these rooms that represent healing and optimism, even though it's just as dark a story as you can find. And I called Connor from Fresno. I said, listen, here's the idea. We're not going to do an interview with our main character. We're just going to use these scenes in these rooms. But we have to be all in. So you got to let me know if you're okay with me going for it, because if we go for it, we're not going to be able to undo it. And he said, well, if you believe in it, that's good enough for me. And again, you know, there's, there's no other network in the world that's going to say that to you. The 30 for 30 about Coach Cal, John Calipari, one and not done. I had a vision of the whole thing being in Cal's head. I just felt that Cal is such a sort of a polarizing symbol of what's wrong and or what's right with college sports. I mean, certainly a lot of people who think he's everything wrong with it. And there are also, I discovered a lot of people who think that he's everything that's right about it, mostly those who know him better. But I thought it would be fascinating to just have a totally internal Calipari film where he was the only voice we heard. And you would make up your own mind as the viewer, whether you like this guy or you hate this guy, but you wouldn't hear anybody else saying, I like him or I hate him. We would just sort of let the experience of Calipari. And he was very open to us in interviews. He was very open to us by letting us mic him up for all these games and in practice every day. I mean, it was really raw and really intense stuff. Their practices are crazy at Kentucky. So that was where I was going with it. And when I sent them the first cut, they weren't too psyched about it. They felt that you can't just give the mic to a guy like Cal Perry because so many people just don't believe him. So many people think it's just bullshit, everything he says. So you would instantly just alienate so much of the potential audience by doing what we're doing. Nothing creatively against it, but just the reality of... This being on television, not like Marcus Dupree or Chris Heron, where the viewer is not bringing, you know, years of preconceived opinions about this guy. You know, you have a lot more liberty to tell the story of Marcus Dupree or Chris Heron the way you want to, because people don't have the strong opinions formed about them already. But with Calipari, to tell the story without acknowledging the haters, so to speak, they felt it would just lack credibility in the real world, even though it would have a lot of credibility perhaps in the artistic world. And, you know, I think they were right. I think there is a way that the audience approaches a film that they understand better than I do. I work from a very sort of push point of view. I just push my story out and I'm 
indifferent to the audience. I mean, I, of course, I'm guided by things I think are going to work for the audience, but I'm not thinking about or caring about what the audience thinks or cares about before they watch my film. I'm going to just push my point of view out there. By now, you've heard many talk of the amazing shave they get from Dollar Shave Club razors, especially when used with their Dr. Carver's shave butter. Now, you can add even more DSC products to your daily routine. Dollar Shave Club makes products for your hair, your face, skin, shower, everything you need. They will have you looking and feeling amazing. And it's all their own original stuff. They only use the finest premium ingredients, and they deliver to you, just like they do their razors. That means no more annoying trips to the store, cruising up and down aisles looking at shelf upon shelf of, what the hell is that and what do I do with it? You can use Dollar Shave Club for just about everything. They will have you covered head to toe. And with gift memberships and e-gift cards available, DSC can help cover the names of your holiday shopping list too. We want you to love Dollar Shave Club as much as millions do. So we've arranged for you to try your first month of their best razor, along with travel-sized versions of shave butter, body cleanser, and yes, even wipes, for just $5. After that, replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the DSC starter set. Get yours for just five bucks, exclusively at Dollar Shave Club, dot com slash origins that's dollarshaveclub.com slash origins from the ever operative who to thunk it file came tales of a separate clandestine group inside espn working on commemorative programming of its own apparently they somehow came up with the idea of doing documentaries to celebrate espn's upcoming 35th anniversary go figure had they come to you and uh, yeah yeah. And was that a little strange for you? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I remember the person who was heading that up, a guy named Doug Warshaw. And I had a lunch with Doug and Jeremy Schapp. And uh, Doug was presenting this to me. And I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> and I went back and talked to Connor about it, you know, and to, and to Bill. <laughs> and then from there, I didn't have to say a word after that because Bill, right. he was not pleased. Yeah. <laughs> he was not pleased at all. Because yeah. I think we had worked so hard to build... 30 for 30 into what it became. And we just thought, you know, we could propel 30 for 30 even further now. Why create confusion with a new brand and a new number to throw out at people? And we just felt like... But also it was more than that because, I mean, it wasn't going to be Connor and Bill doing 35 for 35. Oh, no. Oh, no. And that was, it wasn't going to be me either. It wasn't going to be me. They wanted my input, but I wasn't going to, like, work on it at all. No. Right. That was a bad idea that I had something to do with. I can't quite remember what we were doing. We did talk about doing 35 for 35 people. It was a bad idea. We did a nice job of kind of solidifying our group and also like what our territory was in 2012. We're doing the second series, 30 for 30, and we're doing the shorts on Grantland. And we felt like we wanted to own the digital short space for the company. We wanted that to be ours. Skipper had taken over Bodenheimer's job, hadn't replaced himself yet with content. So there were a bunch of people underneath him that were kind of trying to grab territory. Over the next two years, people tried to start taking the kind of space that we had. And it started with the shorts. You know, you could argue it makes sense for only one part of the company to do shorts. Maybe it should be the part of the company that has really taken the documentary storytelling form to another level. Like, let us do it. But... So E60 started doing them, Sports Center featured, SC featured, ESPNW, ESPN uh, 538. 
within a year and a half, there were five different people making shorts. So we felt like we were losing kind of our base. And what we didn't realize was that there was this rival faction trying to do ESPN 35. The way they did it was they came up with the idea and they went to ad sales and ad sales told them they could sell it. So it was this really smart Bristol way of doing stuff where you get it paid for and then you come back. You're like, here's the idea. It's paid for. We have this amount of money for it already. And then they start thinking, well, if I don't do it, I lose $20 million or whatever it is. That was really messed up. And we found that out in the spring of 2014. Somebody from ad sales alerted Connor about it. Connor's the most upset I've ever seen him about anything because not only did the memo rip off the 30 for 30 memo, like really, like literally took pieces from it. But some of the things they want to develop were stories that we had in development for those second series of 30 for 30. So we were like, what the fuck? And we raised a big stink and this did not help my East Coast, West Coast (laughs) war. And then Skipper had to solve it and figure it out. And he was pissed off about it. He was pissed off that he was in this situation. He was pissed off that we were right. But he's also pissed off that we felt such an ownership over it. You know, he probably felt like, this is my thing. I, sh- I run ESPN. I'll do whatever I want. If I want to do ESPN 35, like, I don't need your guilt trip slash 2,000 word memo on why this is a disaster. So he's kind of mad at us for it, which we just thought was crazy because we're like, 30 is like the best brand you've created in the last decade. Why the hell do you want somebody else in our own company to chew into that brand and confuse the people we have? Like, this is an insane idea. If you want to do more anniversary documentaries, just do them under the 30 for 30 brand. Now, why would you create a second brand? And why would you call it ESPN 35? So we finally talked him out of it. And uh, like by the summer of 2014, he basically shut it down. Quote, Documentaries are the go-to players of sports television, end quote. That was the title of a New York Times piece published in March 2015, which amounted to a gigantic victory lap for the 30 for 30 franchise. One of ESPN's favorite lines in the article ironically came from George Roy, whose HBO documentaries, Times reporter Richard Sandermere wrote, were among its most honored. Said Roy, quote, ESPN has created a brand that is more powerful than HBO's. Sandermeyer went on to point out that the latest 30 for 30, I Hate Christian Leitner, attracted 2.3 million viewers when it first aired, with another 573,000 tuning in when ESPN2 did an encore presentation later that night. The huge numbers and the coronation by the Times fueled celebrations everywhere at ESPN. Well, almost everywhere. So that piece was in mid-March. I got suspended September 2014. It still felt like I had a chance to stay through the holidays. And then when they took all the money out of my paycheck, that went so badly. You mean for the suspension? They took two weeks pay out of my thing. And it was like, at that point, I had five jobs for them. I was working like 70 hours a week. And I just couldn't believe they took money from me. I, I felt like I worked the hardest for them of anybody. And uh, I remember I'd taken one vacation in two years. And on the vacation, I promised my wife I wouldn't work. And I wrote a column about Miami's 27-game win streak. And they were having issues with the Islanders doc that we were doing for the John Spano doc. So I watched it and did three hours of notes on it. And my wife was so mad. She was like, you, you literally can't stop working. And I was like, I, I can't. Like, I just, I just can't stop working. So when they took money from me, I was just, I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, if anyone they were going to take money from, I should have been the last person. January, February, March, it was really, they, I could see them starting to position things like 
life after Bill. The irony of that piece is Connor and I had been talking since 2007 about someday we want to win a Peabody. We wanted to win an Emmy, which we never did. We never actually won. I guess the OJ won. I'll technically win it. And we wanted somebody of, of high respect to write the piece about how we took HBO's corner. So that was a big thing for me, even more than anyone else. I was just, The whole point of the memo is we're taking HBO's corner. The last piece of that was the piece about 30 for 30 took HBO's corner. Because at that point, HBO was out of sports documentaries. They had stopped doing them. And we had basically killed sports documentaries at HBO after Ross Greenberg had been such a dick to us. So I didn't know that piece was being worked on. I knew the writer of it was somebody that they fed a lot of stuff to, as, as we found out two months later. With uh, He was the person who reported that they weren't renewing my contract. And the piece comes out, and I'm not mentioned. And uh, it was a real problem. It really affected my relationship with Connor. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. I don't know how it wasn't in that piece. And it's like, I don't really give a shit about most of this stuff, but that one was like, now you're trying to rewrite what the history of something was, you know? And especially like the second series was dead and wasn't going to happen. And we single-handedly brought it back and something like the OJ thing just wasn't going to happen unless we kept innovating. We were always a team and we were always together. And all of a sudden that one we weren't. And it's been a hard one to reconcile. I spoke to you the day after the piece came out and it felt like... I was crushed. I was so... I felt like completely betrayed. The same writer wrote a piece in 09 where I was like, we're going to take HBO's corner. It was the same writer. So he knew talking what... about Richard Sandomir. Yeah. I didn't want to say his name. But yeah, it was, it was kind of eye-opening. I was surprised because Connor and I were in Connor's office and Sandomir was in the office with us. And we talked about Bill a lot. Like, that wasn't our decision. It was Richard's decision to write what he wrote. And that's, I guess, up to Richard to write it that way. But it didn't reflect the interview that Connor and I did. And so, like, I understand why Bill felt that way. I I understand why he would have felt slighted. Of course he would feel slighted. I mean, this it started with, you know, him having the ear of John Skipper and, and Connor to turn this into something. Maybe Bill Simmons will find comfort in this email reply to a question I asked Sandomir. There was never any attempt to scrub Bill from 30 for 30, not by anyone at ESPN or by me. The story was about the state of the sports documentary six years after the debut of 30 for 30. I didn't think there was anything unfair about citing 30 for 30 without mentioning Bill, end quote. There's always in any culture, of course, some concern if one area gets more attention than another area. And ESPN is overwhelmingly a place that deals in very, very high quality, high volume, right? And so people are required to do a lot of things and produce a lot of content. So if you have the opportunity to have more curated, longer forming content with what's perceived to be uh, large budgets, even though relative to the documentary world, we produce things quite efficiently, we don't have credits, What was controversial early on in 30 for 30 was we had credits. And uh, we sort of said, guys, you kind of got to have credits. That's this business. And people didn't like that. But we got over that. We have credits once a year at ESPN. Yeah, right? On New Year's Eve, they roll the credits for the whole year for the whole company one time. So the idea that we needed credits here and that any one person would try to take credit for something was antithetical to the culture. Now, there's no reason to get too carried away. 
Bill Simmons was a critical guy to this. He was invaluable. He had as much to do with his success as anybody else, but as anybody else was a whole lot of other people too. Connor Shell and John Walsh and Keith Klingscales and Joan Lynch and Mike Tolan and Chris Conley. And again, I've left out four or five. John Dahl, uh, I'll undoubtedly leave some people out. So it's just kind of not how we roll, as they say. But I don't think it detracts much from the achievement either of the individual or of the company in doing this. He publicly trashed ESPN's first take show, denounced two announcers at an ESPN radio station in Boston, and from the outset made clear his lack of interest in exporting and promoting the network's culture. As a result, Simmons found himself rumbling from one noisy controversy to another, all involving ESPN's programs, talent, policies, and philosophy. For his efforts, ESPN suspended Simmons several times, even docking his pay once for two weeks, something about which he has pledged to remain bitter until his dying day. Ultimately and inevitably, the company cut the cord with Simmons after more than a dozen creative years. But while at ESPN, Simmons played a critical role during a critical time in the growth of the empire. In addition to coming up with the original idea for 30 for 30 and naming the bloody thing, he founded Grantland, became ESPN's most engaging and inventive dot-com personality, helped elevate their basketball coverage, and was a Pied Piper for the network on social media. Grantland, to much dismay, closed its doors shortly after Simmons left ESPN, and many other items on that list may no longer be relevant. But the Simmons legacy lives on, most brightly with 30 for 30. It was a blow just because his idea, you know, our identity and so much of 30 for 30 was tied to him, but I think it changed just having his voice to brainstorm ideas, his relationships with filmmakers, giving us notes on stuff. So having that taken away was, you know, no fun, I think. But at that point, Connor was very much in the day-to-day and, and had strong hold on everything we were doing at that point. So for us, it was more, all of us were pals with Bill, and that was a tricky time and uncomfortable. But for us, it was as much losing him just as sort of a an uncle and a founder of 30 for 30 as it was just as a friend. 98% of my dealings with Bill Simmons were positive because he was so ambitious. He was so hardworking. It was unfortunate the way the end happened. But, you know, he had, what, 14 great years at ESPN. When we hired the controversial Keith Oberman in the early 90s, we had four and a half fabulous years before Keith decided that his next chapter was going to be somewhere else. And um, I always admired him. Bill is such an original thinker. And he really did do a modern invention of what a sports column should be. And he had his own world of interpersonal relationships. And I think he fancied himself being independent. I mean, look, when I was working with Bill and working with Connor, I felt loyal to those guys. And so if anybody ever said anything about Bill, like, I would just stay out of that. Like, that's their opinion. They can say what they want. But I always felt... Like it was important to emphasize what Bill brings to ESPN and what he's brought to 30 for 30. Have you gotten to a place now, though, where when you look back at 30 for 30, you're not only immensely proud, but the good outweighs the difficult ending? Yeah. I think what happened with the OJ doc, it's going to take a while to get over that one because they didn't even put me in the credits. You know, when it was promoted and stuff, it was, I was never mentioned any of that. And it's like, look, that was Ezra's thing. 
I didn't give notes on it. I never, once it was developing, it was going. But to me, that was the fact that the OJ thing won an Oscar and that we even did it was the natural outcome of seven years of innovation. And from an idea that started with, there's no way it should have worked, to the natural progression of the series, to the fact that they tried to kill the series, to the fact that we brought it back for a second series and we just kind of played the waiting game and convinced them to do it. And then, you know, the fact that Connor and I were really protective and competitive about it and really wanted it to keep getting better. And that's what led to the OJ thing. It was something we had talked about. So to not even be in the credits for it, I thought was really petty. I've always been one of those guys that I always try to give credit to everybody. And, you know, John Daw, for instance, who was such a huge part of 30 for 30, he got laid off with Joan Lynch's company in 2011. He was pissed. He was going to leave. And Connor and I, for weeks and weeks, fought for him to not leave and come back. And he was just really hurt, you know? It's just the way it was handled. And it had to be handled a certain way, but, and he ended up coming back. But there are all these moments and blips and things and all these different people that were involved and it was just weird like the New York Times thing and the OJ thing were kind of the victory laps of the whole thing so to get cut out of that part was weird and I'll never fully understand it this is Parachute CEO she goes on vacation in Europe and on the way home she basically starts to think about hunting down sheets and she can't find them and then she starts a company and then all of a sudden she's doing towels and now they're into table linens. Oh my God. I, I think she's going to be taking over Facebook soon. Um, <laughs> but uh, this time, instead of uh, Portugal, now the table linens, of course, when you think of table linens, you think of Italy. So here we go. They got a world-class Italian factory and uh, the, the factory's been going for more than 80 years and now it's cranking out beautiful parachute table linens. You could set your table with it or give it as a gift. Well, how about this? I'll see your table linens and I'll raise you some baby bedding. Don't tell me. Jim, I'm dead serious. A buddy of mine has a little baby. They just bought parachute baby bedding. Actually, it makes sense because, look, I remember when each of my three kids came home from the hospital. The most important thing is, you know, what you're going to put them down on. Yep. So the idea that there's going to be these natural and safe sheets that feel great, I think that's probably a pretty smart move on their yeah, part. Yeah, that is a good move. Visit ParachuteHome.com slash Origins and get your free shipping and returns on any of Parachute's amazing products. That's ParachuteHome.com slash Origins for free shipping and returns. In 2016, ESPN released Ezra Edelman's OJ Made in America, a project that had been in the works for almost seven years. Connor had always had his eye on OJ's larger story and his cultural story. And so I met with Ezra in the West Village, I think it was February of 2014. And we had a, we caught up on a few things. And I brought up, what do you think about a big OJ project? And he sort of rolled his eyes and completely shut me down 100%. <laughs> he just said, it's overdone. No one wants to see a gossipy kind of gross rehashing of what happened. And the one thing that I think, at least he claims, stuck true was, well, what if we gave you the time? What if this wasn't a one or two hour documentary? Has anyone ever pulled all these pieces together and brought the true context to that story? And I think he walked away not wanting to do it. I think he had a lot of conversations about what that story really was about. And not long after, started reading every book about OJ and came back and said, if you're serious and if you'll give me 
then we couldn't imagine a four-hour documentary, then I think I'm, I'll do it. And so we kind of kicked off from there. For uh, production executives out there and development people who have never or yet to experience something like the wild ride that you went on with OJ, mm -hmm. tell us, what's it like when all of a sudden you've all given birth to this thing, you know how good it is, and you're about to let it out into the wild? Just even on a professional and personal level, what was it like for that ride? That's a really good question. It was, you know, now we talk about what next. And I'm like, am I ever going to feel that way again? Are we ever going to? I mean, it's impossible to top the buzz and the feedback that we got from that project. I know when it got into Sundance, I think we knew, we sort of begged, not begged, but I think we called and followed up with them. And I was sort of like, do you want to show an hour of this thing? We have this thing, you know, I was so vague about it because I was so timid and I just wanted them to watch it. You know, I couldn't figure out how to just get people to sit down. I was like, I think if I can get them to sit down, they'll stay with it. And I'll never forget the email we got back. They said, we want the whole thing. This is a film. This is one story. You can't take an hour or two, which was, you know, I was just sort of tiptoeing into it. And then I remember being in the theater, the Egyptian theater in Park City at Sundance and the reviews started coming in while we were sitting there because they had released the film to some press to review it that couldn't come out until we were screening. And again, it was like, oh my God, they like it. And I remember that weekend, Ezra became a celebrity that weekend, I felt. You know, we were going to these parties and people were pulling him aside and the buzz just there in town was sort of going. You start this job and all of a sudden one day you're getting dressed for the Oscars. I mean, what? You know, God, I mean, when is that going to happen again? You know, right. it's insane. It still feels dreamlike, I have to say. I can tell you the night of the Oscars, we were like, of course we're not going to win. Like, this is ridiculous. What are we doing? I was waiting to get thrown out of there the whole time. And then, of course, everyone's mad at me for saying that. Well, of course you were going to win because we had done so well leading up to it. But the whole thing just felt sort of magical and, and exciting. Every minute of it. It was exhausting. It was really exhausting, especially for Ezra and Caroline. But, you know, now I think I kind of already am looking back. Like, I hope I knew how good I had it. You know, I hope I knew... When you have something that great, it's worth sort of all of the time and the energy and, and the tears. So we drove all the way down to Thousand Oaks on a Friday and did this million dollar arm screening. And we watched the movie with this audience. They filled out the cards. It was like the highest rating any Disney sports movie had gotten. Everyone was happy. So we're driving back to my house after. And we're like, this is great. Like 30 30s worked, 30 30s shorts worked. This million dollar arm thing's gonna be good for us. What's the next thing? And we kept coming back to the multi-part thing. And that was when the OJ, in that car ride, was the OJ thing. And it was like, well, let's do OJ week. If we're not doing Tice week, let's do OJ week. We've always wanted to do OJ. We almost did in 2009 when we had the space. Let's do it. Okay. So I think we sketched out that it should be three nights. We didn't really talk about what it would look like, but it was just like OJ week. All right. Ezra. I was obsessed with Tommy Hearns. I thought Tommy Hearns would be one of the great 30 for 30s who should direct it. Connor was friends with Ezra from Ezra did Bird and Magic. He always thought Ezra was really talented. And the whole story with Bird and Magic was Ezra did the Bird and Magic doc, which was really good. And then Ross Greenberg took credit for it. And there was this famous story where uh, they did this premiere and Ross Greenberg, they show it. And then Ross Greenberg afterwards does all these things never says Ezra did it so Ezra was out at that point and we're gonna have Ezra do this Tommy Hearns one did some legwork on it Tommy Hearns wanted to get paid which was a big no-no for us with 30 for 30 
And he was also like, this is sad, but he just would have been a tough interview. Like he's really in bad shape. So didn't look like that was going to work, but we still knew we wanted to do something with Ezra. So Connor went and talked with Ezra. And so here's the OJ idea. That spring, so now it's spring 2014. I was still doing Countdown and still in there. Ezra sent back this pitch for what he thought the OJ thing would be. And it was three days, four hours or five hours, I forget. And it's just basically like, I think this could be race, culture, all these things that basically became the thing. I was into it because I had loved the uh, Jeffrey Tubin book about OJ, which hit a lot of the same things, that the trial was bigger than just the trial. It was about celebrity. It was about LA and race and just made sense. It was like, let's do this. So then Connor sent an email with me and Libby CC to Skipper and was like, I'm forwarding this Ezra pitch about OJ. You know, we really want to do a multi-part series. We think this can be it. Libby, Bill, and I all think this could be great. And then Skipper's like, let's do it. And we're like, all right. Ezra goes off. And I remember when I was still there, Ezra starts doing the interviews. And Connor called me during that summer. Listen to this story. Ezra goes to find the helicopter pilot that shot the car chase. And he is now a woman. And I was like, what? And it was like, and it was the transgender um, helicopter pilot. And tells the whole story. And a couple of the interviews that Ezra got in our day was like, oh, this is something. But Ezra basically went in the bunker and interviewed all these different people. So I was getting little feedback about it during the time I was there. And then obviously I left. There was some experience with Ezra. He had some comfort level, particularly with Connor once again, but also I think with Libby, who wasn't a big player in the original 30 for 30, but who runs it now? Look, Ezra Edelman is why we got OJ. But it's the same thing we did when we started, right? Ezra was going to do, I can't remember, a two-hour film or four-hour film. Connor did exactly what I did. He said yes. And then when Ezra said, well, I don't think it's going to be two hours. It's going to be four. It's going to be five. It's going to be six. Connor said, okay. So it's having the empowerment, the willingness to allow a creator to pursue something well beyond what they were before. And then they swamped him with notes. If you talk to Ezra, you know, John Dahl and Libby and John Walsh and Connor, and I'm certainly missing somebody. But uh, again, it's a lot to do with the process all along, but you can never, an individual's vision and creativity is at the heart of it. We simply enabled it. Once again, Ezra Edelman. That thing happened to be in the right place at the right time in the world for it to be told. And sort of how it gamed out, even the way it ended up coming out in the world, as much as it was initially, you know, sort of a source of frustration for me is, well, what are the chances of doing this big thing at the same time that this television network does a scripted series and thinking, well, this is going to be terrible. Even that worked out well. There was a sort of serendipity to the process that was both sort of all of us individually, I think, aligning at the right time combined with sort of the forces within the world that allowed the thing to exist in the way it did. Obviously, OJ Made in America was something that you and others worked on and worked on for quite a long time. But do you think that there's some strong connective tissue to what started back in 2007? Of course. I mean, I think they're directly related. And I understand, as I say, that Ezra wouldn't think of it this way. But I think of that as the sort of end of a 10-year journey. It wouldn't have been possible for ESPN Films to think of something that ambitious, to have the credibility to actually convince people that we could pull it off. And 
I'm not sure our audience or the community of critics would have accepted that the way we did it if it didn't stand on the shoulders of, you know, mix a bunch of metaphors here. But this house we had sort of built brick by brick with the hundred documentary films we'd made before that. So I think it's a direct line from the beginning of the conversation around 30 for 30 to that project. And look, I, I may be the only one who sees it so clearly, but having sat in every iteration of that conversation along the way, I, I understand that you know having Ezra embark on making that film would not have been possible without every single thing that had been done before that. The strength of Connor as an executive is this sense of calm he projects in addition to sort of unending support, at least in my experience with him. He's a problem solver. He doesn't get waylaid by the issues that I would as a filmmaker, which is to be worried about every single little thing. He does not worry about little things. And even bigger things when you say, this needs to be longer, or I think I need more money. He doesn't burden you with like, oh, I don't know how that's going to happen. He goes, okay, let me figure it out. I think that the trajectory of him at the company and the place that he has earned there and the capital that he has earned there, I think also probably served him well and certainly served our film well when it came to the decisions that sort of he needed to make to give us the freedom to make what we were making. Like everything, it's not just one factor, but it was the right sort of place and time in terms of him wanting to do this thing. Jonathan Hawk. I'll get calls from John Skipper. I got a call from Bob Iger after a couple of these that they're really watching and they're really caring and it's not hitting their bottom line in a big way, I imagine. You know, obviously the billions of dollars they're dealing with these little films are a rounding error on their balance sheet, but they really care. And uh, that means a lot to a guy like me. And I think the 30 for 30 series is that the rarest of network television projects that allows for failure. You know, I don't think that they've all been super fantastic, and certainly not all of mine have been super fantastic, but they're not all the same, and they always try to be something special because they've incentivized the filmmaker by, not by paying him $100 million, but by entrusting the product to him. And, you know, it is a product, that's the reality, but for us it's a story, and for somebody with that amount of clout and muscle to, to say, go ahead, tell your story, that's pretty awesome, and uh, I am deeply grateful to have been part of it from the beginning. 30 for 30 executive producer, John Dahl. The day we found out we won a Peabody Award for 30 for 30, that was really satisfying and gratifying, I think, particularly to Bill to Connor and to me. But I think there were just different checkpoints along the way. I think the Len Bias film was the first film that really got like a strong rating. That was exciting. That was like our fifth film. And it's like, wow, maybe we're on to something. The U was huge. And that was particularly satisfying to me because I had gone to uh, Miami to work with Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman and our, our project leader, Aruna Madar, went with me and we were working that film over in that summer and to see how that one exploded. Um, in that Heisman slot and the way people reacted to the U like was a big seminal moment. All right, how about your worst day? Or one of your worst days? Uh, <laughs> when we, we had to uh, basically postpone indefinitely down in the valley 
the Sacramento Kings film. That was hard. That was difficult on multiple levels, especially since Jason Hare had done just, you know, just such a great job, you know, directing the film. But it was the right decision, and that was really hard. I, and why? Why did you make the decision? We made the decision because the storyline changed, in a sense, and uh, there were things that came up about Kevin Johnson that we were not comfortable putting the film on, and we decided we thought it was best um, to postpone it indefinitely, and that's what we did. And and it also became public, and it became public, you know. And I was doing an interview about why we were we just decided to stop and reevaluate the film. That was really hard. That was really hard. I remember that Sunday when I, I had 54 phone calls that day dealing with the whole situation. And my wife was out of town on top of it. So I, I was juggling the kids <laughs> and 54 phone calls that day. I was, that was a really hard day. In terms of quality, success, and potential legacy, 30 for 30 represents one of perhaps the very best of the John Skipper era. It has been a near total triumph for ESPN, a rare case that found the planets in harmonious configuration the opposite of a perfect storm. Singularly and communally, 30 for 30 is an object lesson in creative leadership, the power of great ideas, and the even more difficult path of turning them into reality. There's three highlights of 30 for 30 for me. One was George coming to the Peabody thing. One was when Skipper greenlit the second series. And then, uh, honestly, the third one was just when it launched because it, it had been, at that point, two and a half years that we worked on this and even to the bitter end I just felt like is this rug going to get pulled out of us and what's going to happen it was we just felt we were so happy that it just was up and the little graphics and it was just amazing it was amazing to watch it go from being this little documentary fetus all the way through and then the fourth highlight was when HBO stopped doing sports documentaries just because I'm a competitive asshole. I just love that. <laughs> I, was say, I was like, yeah, we're not doing these anymore. We're like, we beat you. You were such dicks to us. Greenberg was such... And I've met him since. He's a nice enough guy, but man, he was so arrogant about it. And I think that was one of the reasons Skipper wanted to beat him. The biggest thing we didn't expect with the 30 for 30 series, and there was just no way to anticipate it, how the hell would we have known, was that people would watch them over and over again. We said no idea. We initially we felt like this is something that would just go up. People would watch them. Maybe collectively we could sell them as DVDs, which we ended up doing. But what we didn't expect was that people would watch the Fab Five documentary seven times, or that the ninth time that we ran the U would get a rating that was eighty percent of what the rating was the first time. I mean, it was like it was crazy. Initially, we thought with the series that, you know, it would be potential library material for ESPN Classic, which desperately needed it. What we didn't anticipate was it was library material for ESPN and ESPN2. And the reason it became so valuable to them over all the other stuff we've already talked about was the fact that if the Western Conference Round 2 ended in six games instead of seven, and they had this night that was targeted for... Game seven, now all of a sudden there's no playoff game. Oh, what do, what do we do last minute? In the old days, they would have either had to run Sports Center or I don't even know what they would have run. Now they just put 30 for 30s in wherever and they could kind of hold the rating. And you see it, like you'll see it on Christmas Day or, or Christmas Eve or something. Well, they'll just run 10 30 for 30s in a row. Or you'll see just 30 for 30s on ESPN2 on some random Tuesday night. They're running two of them in a row and they get ratings. So it's really hard to calculate what the value of that was for the company because 
we probably produced with the two 30 for 30 series we probably produced i don't know 75 80 hours of content but how many actual hours did they get out of that like eight thousand? i don't even know one of the coolest things was we had a lot of good people working underneath us that became part of that 30 for 30 team that really blossomed as it went along and i think those people you know like somebody libby geist John Dahl was just like the best possible use of John Dahl. Dan Silver got involved. People like Deirdre Fenton and Jen Anthony who started out like really low. I think both of them were Connor's assistants and moved up the ladder and became big parts of the series. And it became this little incubation ground for, I think, some really good people that were talented. That um, that was a cool part of it too. We just felt like we're just doing good stuff and we're working with good people, which is kind of the dream scenario, right? I go to film festivals and meet with filmmakers, especially documentarians, and I say, hey, we have money. Let's green light a great project together. And by the way, millions of people will see that. That is such an incredible place to be coming from, is setting up meetings and being able to just talk about our platform is really rare. And obviously, the documentary space has grown and the genre has changed so much since 30 for 30 started. But I think it's grown exponentially since I started, even in production, I don't know if it's too self-serving to give 30 for 30 credit for that, but I think in the sports genre, there are sports festivals at South by Southwest, and we have one at Tribeca, and I don't know. I think certainly the genre has exploded beyond sports, of course, and and I think just as someone in this tiny documentary community, I think, frankly, the money and the exposure that a lot of these projects are getting is so exciting, and it's so exciting to watch. For me, selfishly, you know, I worry. I'm like, are we getting boxed out here? Netflix money and some of the exposure that they can throw at some of these docs has totally changed the game. And I think over the last year, it's changed more than ever. I'm so protective of our little group. I'm like, but we're film people and we're in New York. And I think we've done well because we are siloed a little bit. But from the first days that I started appreciating our need for the support of Bristol, obviously financially, and you know, right. we wouldn't be here otherwise. But if Sports Center isn't showing our clips and if we don't have the machine behind every film we do, no one's going to see them. And we're not going to bring the context. And, and we, I hate to say, but like our, the importance at our company dwindles completely. Can you imagine there being 30 for 35 years from now, 10 years from now? I can because as long as athletes are playing games and and people are you know involved in sports, there are going to be stories to tell. I remember even after the first thirty, people were like hey, you know, can you do more? And like we show we could do more. Five years from now, like at the end of Volume Three, we can assess: Does the brand still mean something? Does it still matter? If it does, why not launch potentially a Volume Four? Connor did emerge during this process, where he went from being somebody who probably in the Ritz Carlton that day. I was probably trying to remember his name. So pretty quickly you understood that this uh, kid, and of course he wasn't a kid, but he was a kid, was very, very talented, and that this was going to be sort of a maker for him. I can happily say he's still the Connor I started out with completely. <laughs> I'm a big believer that you can't do the same thing for too long, and it's why it's really important for me right now, and it's the hardest thing that I have to do in my job to let Libby Geist and John Dahl run with this thing, and they have different tastes than me and different ideas than I do. And the whole premise of 30 for 30 was, we don't want any of these films to look and feel the same as the one you saw before or the one will come after, right? Like I said, when we started 30 for 30, there was never a conversation about 
okay, we're gonna do this and it better rate uh, 0.9 every night, otherwise it's not worth it. Like, it was just about, are the films good? Do we respect the work we're creating here? And do we think our audience will enjoy it? And if we do those things, then it's a success. For so many reasons, it seems appropriate for former ESPN president John Skipper to have the final words. ESPN, I think, overwhelmingly, there is a dramatic feeling of gratification and pride in having done 30 for 30. I think that's widely shared. I run into lots of people who have no idea that there were 30 films for the 30th anniversary. Let's see, this year is our 38th anniversary, so we're still making these films. Uh, and we have, oh my gosh, that reminds me, we probably got to think of something for the 40th. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Thanks for listening. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.